Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Vice blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And also, please consider signing up for the Farm's patron. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. All right, guys. Today's guest is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures, an assessment of the conditions of the present and the forthcoming acceleration, Utopian Currents from Data to the CCRU. Folks, I give you guys the great Edmund Berger, and thank you so much for dropping by today. Hey, Stephen, I'm glad to be here. Uh, do, do you go by Stephen or, or Recluse when, when you're recording the show? Stephen or Recluse is fine. Just don't call me Steve, man. Okay, that works for me. Okay. <laughs> okay, guys. Today's show is one I've been looking forward to. Effectively, Ed and I are going to explore the state of modern liberalism with a special emphasis on what is commonly referred to as cultural Marxism. This is a loaded expression, however, and one that has become greatly degraded in the 21st century. What is described as cultural Marxism today by conservatives is largely postmodernism, one of the most potent ideological currents to emerge in the 20th century. It has had a profound influence on a host of mediums and ideologies. Now, we're going to explore all of this and more over the course of today's show. It is an important one, so make sure you stick around to the very end. All right, Ed, before we really get going, why don't you define postmodernism for us? This is a term that's bannered around a lot, but it can mean many different things to many different people. All right. Yeah. Like, um, it's that kind of like a, a really interesting question. It's like pretty much the most difficult question. Cause, like you say, it's, uh, there, there's so many kind of competing interpretations of what postmodernism is. And I think that like any explanation I'll give right now would probably be kind of lacking, but I think that, you know, as we go through the show, we can kind of untangle it, you know, little, little bits and pieces. But um, the way that I see postmodernism is, you know, like l- look at like the, the way it's designated, a postmodernism, you know, th- this suggests a style or an ideology, well, it's most certainly an ideology, but I, you know, in, that positions it in contrast to what we would say modernism is. So to like understand postmodernism, we do have to talk about modernism, but, you know, I'd like to go like a little bit below the surface, you know, like when you say modernism or postmodernism, there's something else there, which we could call modernity, or postmodernity. And when we do that, we kind of slip from like questions of style into, uh, you know, like uh, basically like a character of a historical period. You know, you had the, the, the era of modernity, the era of postmodernity. And, you know, when we're talking about the era of postmodernity, would kind of characterize that as the prevailing kind of cultural condition that we've been in since uh, probably the early 
you know, 1970s. And there's reasons, you know, and I think we can get into that a bit, uh, like why I think that like that's the period. But, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the traits that typify it are kind of like a overarching loss of belief and like a lot of previously held structures and narratives, uh, you know, like people always associated modernity with like secularism, but this was also a period when there were like lots of deeply entrenched belief systems, you know, like Marxism, even like capitalism as a belief system. In the post-modernity, you don't really have that as much. And so you kind of get this like free floating um, kind of self-referential uh, you know, kind of infinitely flexible and hybrid kind of, uh, you know, set of conditions. Uh, and I know that that sounds like really vague and kind of, you know, hand wavy, but when we get into like concrete examples. I think that that'll kind of like start falling into place. Well, I was actually, I was thinking it actually sort of reminds me of how cuisine, because I'm a cook. I mean, it sure is a lot of oh, cool. know, um, professionally. And um, yeah, I mean, you used to have this really strict divide where it was like, okay, it's Italian food or, you know, it's Greek food or, you know, you might do the both together. But I mean, you wouldn't necessarily bring in elements from Indian cuisine or, uh, Hong Kong cuisine or something like that but I mean now you know you see restaurants that have all these different cuisines there and you're combining the stuff like in one individual dish you know right uh, like the fusion food and- yeah 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 I mean you know you're getting like crab ragoons that you're dipping like in sriracha mayo uh, maybe with like a side of um, you know uh, what hash brown casserole or something like that I mean, <laughs> yeah yeah Sounds like an it sounds pretty good. <laughs> like, but but yeah, I think that that's actually like a really good example of like what you could call like postmodern like hybridity or hybridization. And you know, all these like various kind of like you know, earlier really fixed cultural forms kind of fragment. They don't like fragment and drift off. They all kind of start to to recombine in, in strange ways. You know, um, I, I, I do think that that's really at the core. Uh, well, I wouldn't say the core. I think the core of post, you know, the question of modernism, postmodernism is like actually a question about time. But we can get more into that. But like what you're describing is like a perfect example of it. Oh, yeah. Well, especially, man, when you get into some of the pizzas we do now, too. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah? <laughs> like, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, is there anything you can't put on a pizza in the 21st century now? Man? Yeah, you know, the, the the great debate of modernity was the, the status of pineapple on a pizza, but now <laughs> at this point, that's just... That's oh, completely yeah, yeah, quaint. yeah. You know, we've gone far beyond the, the pineapple pizza question. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they would probably burn our pizza joint to the ground if we didn't have pineapple <laughs> on some of the pizza pizzas man i mean is that popular where you are oh yeah 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 man they oh, love wow. the pineapples on the pizza man over here in kentucky people don't seem to be too crazy about it that's interesting oh, wow well i mean we are close to dc so you know oh, well, okay there you go i don't know maybe you guys don't have quite a big enough urban area around there but um i'm sure you'll eventually get the pineapples on the pizza man yeah the the, the, <laughs> the great modernizing process of pineapple <laughs> All right, so let's trace the origins of uh, modernism a bit. Uh, finding a beginning for these types of things uh, without going back to the dawn of Western thought in ancient Greece is always a little difficult. Uh, so for the sake of brevity, why don't we start with the Romantics and Nietzsche? Because they definitely come up a lot in this tangled web. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just going to say like right up front that I'm not a big expert on Romanticism. 
but I, I do know like a, a fair like amount bound with Nietzsche. So I, I think we can get into, you know, both of these a bit. Um, and there's like a lot of really interesting things that are happening right now in the study of romanticism. A lot of like, uh, you know, a reevaluation is taking place. And that actually kind of shifts the terms of the debate. But like in the in, in like the most conventional narrative around like romanticism, uh, it's a modernist movement uh, started. You know, I think that 1770 was probably like the you know that's kind of treated as the conventional beginning, and in romanticism, it, it's seen as kind of a reaction against modernity. You have this like looking backwards towards the past and this longing and preoccupation with it. Um, and at the core of this whole kind of like uh, aesthetic and philosophical orientation is the question of what's called the sublime. And the sublime is a, it's a feeling of both awe and fear, but it's mixed together in a way that's kind of intangible and difficult to communicate. Um, the philosopher Immanuel uh, Kant, he talked about the sublime a lot. And he saw it, you know, like you're, you're before like a massive mountain or a hurricane and you're kind of overwhelmed with nature and you can't really communicate uh, what it is that you're experiencing, right? Um, that's the sublime. It kind of slips out of our categories of reason. Um, and, and so like, uh, you know, you look at a lot of like romantic artwork and it's always these very like massive mountains, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, forests, and it's always kind of imposing, but also very like deeply beautiful. And that's like that fix that mixture of fear and awe. Um, and so like, uh, it's it's interesting because like philosophically that translates into you know this like kind of preoccupation with uh, kind of uh, you know aesthetic experiences. That's that's what romanticism is most interested in. It's the 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 feeling of the art, the intensity of it. Um, and in the conventional narrative about romanticism, uh, the experience of the sublime is kind of it's channeled backwards like into the past and it expresses this desire you know modernity is this uh you know the great industry and urbanization and so it's like we got to get back to the past to escape that um but there's a couple of like you know the key characteristics and and one of those is like this celebration of the individual in uh in romanticism but the individual is always like a hero or a genius. These are like the archetypes that, that typify uh, the, the romantic, uh, yeah, the, the romantic hero, the romantic genius. I and there's to, always this. Oh, go even ahead. Even if I ask for a second, do you see like yeah. um, an influence specifically on uh, libertarianism? I mean, that was just sort of something that struck me as I've been looking at romanticism, um, you know, lately. Yeah. Sort of this, you know, mystification of this, the rugged individualism of the man on the frontier, that I, kind of thing. I, I do think that there is something there uh there's an interesting like like this is something that gets brought up a lot when we're talking about like the influence of uh romanticism on postmodernism because like like foucault when he's talking about like he doesn't use the term postmodernism but it's like pretty easily interchangeable with what he is talking about he talks about how we've all become uh, entrepreneurs of the self 
you know, and that makes sense when you think about like how contemporary capitalism is. Everybody has to be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you have this kind of like celebration of creativity and spontaneity. And you can draw like resemblances from romanticism to that today. I think that today our understanding of the hero does not equalize, you know, like with the understanding of like romantic, the, the romantic hero or the romantic genius, but the, the entrepreneur, the person who goes out and creates this new thing. Uh, it, it's not so much like the aesthetic aspect that we privilege today, even though everything today is aesthetic, but you know, like swap the aesthetic experience for the commercial experience. And you do get a pretty perfect translation. You can almost, I mean, see some parallels even to like objectivism and Rand's almost, you know, godlike uh, protagonists, you know, if you will. That um... yeah, yeah, e exactly. And, and this is really kind of the the rereading of uh, like the the you know because um, what you're describing is like definitely there and is definitely like something that's been assessed. But lately, like you know, academics have unearthed you know this kind of other dimension of uh romanticism and, and this one is concerned with like edu education like an aesthetic education for the public in order to have like good government and you see in that sense it doesn't really work but there's then you have to ask questions like why is that dimension why has that been buried you know like what why is it only the individual the romantic individual that gets talked about and not this whole other kind of like public aspect that was there. And so it makes sense, like, you know, in the, this culture is, you know, you're just saying, you're right, it's very conditioned by this Randian, libertarian, like heroic, you know, commercial individual. Our culture, you know, has taken what it wanted from like these older impulses and just kind of like buried the rest, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Ed. Um, but yeah, I didn't mean to get you off track there. Oh, no, you're good. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. In interrupt me at any bit because I, you know, like I have a tendency to kind of ramble with some of these things. So at any point, please stop me in my tracks. All right, man. Well, did you have any more you want to add in romanticism or you want to pick up with Nietzsche? Uh, yeah, we can go in into Nietzsche. Uh, he this is definitely somebody I, I do know like a, a bit more about Nietzsche. And um I, I think that this is where we can get kind of controversial and kind of push back against some of the uh more contemporary interpretations of Nietzsche. Uh, because he's definitely also been somebody who's been uh, you know, kind of retooled into this like hyper individual, individualistic kind of you know, the libertarian Nietzsche that definitely kind of rules today, you know. But uh, he's a G German philosopher. Uh, he, he actually like gets talked about in relationship with the romantics like quite a bit. Um, I do think that there's like some pretty stark differences there. You know, there's several decades that do separate them. Um, and the thing is, is that, like he shares a lot of traits that he was also really interested in the individual and, you know, creativity and spontaneity but he's he's doing something really kind of weird with all these things and you know people can kind of push back on this reading uh i'm really influenced by the french nietzscheans 
And so like, maybe this is more their Nietzsche than like Nietzsche's Nietzsche. But the, the way that they interpret Nietzsche, and I think this is probably the most accurate, um, when he talks about like the individual, like he's concerned with what we might call like the pre-subjective, right? Um, and so like, you know, if I say I am Ed, or you say like, I am Stephen, you know, there's that sense of I-ness, of being a self like with an identity. Um, Nietzsche would say that that doesn't come at the beginning. It's the byproduct of like a process that comes before it. Uh, there's like a pre-subjective matrix. You can kind of think about this, you know, like Freud talks about the unconscious. You know, it's a thing that we don't have access to, but it's like comes before the conscious mind. Uh, for Nietzsche, what he's trying to do is get out of the I, you know, like if we were to be Nietzscheans, you know, I would try to get out of being Ed. You would try to, you know, be getting out of being Steve and you would kind of want to get into that, you know, matrix space, you know, this unconsciousness that uh, produces these things. It's, you know, um, and so in that sense, I don't think it makes you know, it's the, the, the kind of postmodern take of Nietzsche is like this, like, you know, rugged individual, but like, it's not what Nietzsche's doing at all. Like he's pushing back against the, you know, this notion of individuality. And he's not saying that like creativity comes from the individual. It comes from what comes before the individual. Um, you know, I, th I think that that's really interesting because like that actually kind of opens up some really interesting possibilities on, uh, you know, like, like we're in a society that very much is oriented and, and focused on being an individual. You know, you have this position that's like, well, you want to kind of like, maybe not discard the individual, but like, don't make it the center of the universe. And you say like, that's where creativity comes from. That actually opens up like an alternative to postmodernism. Now, real quick, could you, <clears throat> it occurs to me, could you touch on um, um, schizophrenia for a minute here? Because I know that's sort of a current, obviously, with Nietzsche, and I mean, with some of the yeah. movements um, that we're going to get into here in a little bit. So do you want to address that maybe here real quick? Yeah, absolutely. And because, you know, like, Nietzsche is really kind of famous for uh, having this, like, uh, you know, pretty dramatic uh breakdown kind of later in his life and a lot of his most interesting work actually kind of happened in that time period um and you know the you know the Deleuze and Guattari they're two French philosophers French Nietzscheans and uh Guattari was a psychoanalyst and they, and they were very interested in the question of schizophrenia and, and Nietzsche's like their go-to uh you know one one of multiple and so, so for them, they see like a profound affinity between creativity and schizophrenia. And, you know, we're talking about this whole thing of like getting out of the individual. And like, yeah, that is kind of a schizophrenic impulse, you know. But they, you know, they want to draw a distinction between like schizophrenia as a creative process and schizophrenia as like a clinical condition. Uh, schizophrenia as a clinical condition for them is 
the the way that our society channels the creative impulse. You might have this kind of creative dynamic thing that's happening. Our culture is kind of neurotic and paranoid and sick. So it kind of plunks schizophrenia into this like kind of, uh, yeah, they call it catatonic. That's not really a good phrase. It's kind of derogatory. Um, but but they see somebody like Nietzsche as somebody who kind of pushed through it, uh, got got to like this like true schizophrenia. And I know that sounds like really extreme, and you know it is extreme. But you know we're talking about like avant garde, like you know weirdos for lack of a better word. But yeah, but and you see in postmodern like in the postmodern condition, a, a very large focus on schizophrenia, both in the sense that we're describing, but also the kind of clinical uh, schizophrenia. Um, it would probably be fair to call postmodernism like a schizophrenic society in the clinical sense of the word. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, before we move on, like getting back to the romantics for a second. Um, yeah, yeah. William Blake. Um, I mean, I know Blake is now kind of seen as uh, a kind of proto-influence, I suppose, on like the trans movement, if you will. I mean, certainly there's a lot of that present in his artwork, his conception of angels and that type of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Is to Blake influence in some of this? Uh, that's actually a really good question. And I do not really know like William Blake that well, to be honest with you. Like, I wish I could answer that question better because I think that's a really, really interesting one. Um, and, and I do know that the, the Lewis and Guattari also include the, William Blake in that kind of like authentic schizophrenic lineage, uh, you know, talking about, you know, it, it, this is more like a, almost like a shamanism more than a, the clinical schizophrenic. And I think that, you know, you kind of look at William Blake's like kind of religious impulses, the religious experiences that he had and how that's expressed in artwork. And eh, you might be able to draw an interesting kind of correlation between Blake and, and shamanism. I don't, I don't know. I would have to look into that more. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we had um, um, David Metcalf on here not too long ago who had gotten a, a little bit into the Moravian church, which it certainly seems that uh, Blake's parents had been members of and uh, had possibly taken some of it to heart. But um, a big aspect of the more aspect of the Moravian church was certainly uh, theurgy. I mean, these uh, angelic communications. If and um, that had been a part of the Moravians, as far as I can tell, going back to at least uh, the 17th century, um, the early 17th century, really around the time of the Russian Crucian movement and whatnot. But um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting current, but it had sort of occurred to me that there was this tradition in the Moravians of these, you know, uh, almost mystical states, you know, I mean, for the process of yeah. and theurgy and this other type of thing. And oh, okay. Yeah, that's actually like a really like, uh, you know, I was ranting about like authentic schizophrenia versus clinical schizophrenia. Like it's that's a really good way to look at it. Like think of it uh, as, as like more in line of these like mystical states. Um, yeah, that, that's really cool. I'm, I'm going to make a note, you know, to, to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting thing. But I mean, yeah, that kind of strange, you know, esoteric Christ Christian tradition that Blake was a part of, it sort of uh, led to these mystical states of an almost induced schizophrenia. And then you see that maybe possibly creeping into some of the romantics. And yeah, it's something I wonder, is this sort of where the beginning of this, uh, for lack of a better term, romanticism of uh, schizophrenia came from? And some of these Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and that would make really like a, a, a lot of sense because like when we're talking about like Nietzsche wanting to get out of, you know, the individual, uh, talk about like, losing Guattari's schizophrenia, um, you know, the, the, when talking about like that s- sensation of fear and awe, like the sublime in uh, romanticism, like the sublime, like, yeah, this is basically what they're talking about, you know, like reason, you know, in philosophy, it's basically uh, a process through which, you know, we have categories of thought, we experience the world, it's sorted into the categories in an intelligible way. But the sublime kind of scrambles our categories up, it renders reality as something other than it is in itself. So like you could draw a line, you know, from the sublime to Nietzsche, to losing Guattari, you know, from, from this, you know, grand experience to this desubjectification, then to this like kind of schizophrenic psychedelic madness. And so, you know, talking about these groups and individuals and like experiences that come before romanticism, I could definitely see that kind of influencing, you know, there are all these different things are kind of circling, circling around something, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, definitely have to maybe get into those subjects at some other point because it it is very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that the require more research. But yeah, some of those ideals, though, man, like in the 16th, 17th century, especially oddly, a lot of them ending up gravitating to the Moravian Church over the years. It's it's very interesting to put it mildly. I I don't know anything about that church, so I'm gonna have to you know look, definitely look more into that. Yeah, I'll send you a uh, link for a really good book on that album. Oh, pl- up here, but um. Oh, please do. All right, so let's uh, move on, though, for now and talk about a subject that's fascinated me for some time now. That is Dadaism, which I've been obsessed with ever since I read the uh, Grail Marcus book on that, Lipstick Traces. Oh, that book is fantastic. I That book is like, I don't know, like that that was one of those like, you know, life changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I read that when I was like a teenager before I really do anything about this. I was interested in the take on the sex pistols. And yeah, it really. Yeah, situationism. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the book that I just wrote definitely draws a lot on that. And, you know, but just Grill Marcus was so good in terms of style how he he made himself he a rock like, journalist i mean that helped yeah but but it was like he's writing about like these like very chaotic you know weird counter wouldn't even call it counterculture but you know this uh kind of proto you know, counterculture even yeah yeah but but the way that he did it stylistically is that he made it read as if you were there or like he mm. was part of it just oh, yeah yeah fantastic yeah i mean he's a, a great writer i mean for those of you out there who are not aware of him his other book uh, mystery train is fantastic yeah too. um but okay so dadaism uh yeah what was it and what was its influence on postmodernism? okay yeah th- this is m- much like nietzsche in romantics um pretty kind of like controversial and kind of a lot of different ways that you know you could go about it and for people who don't know dada was it was an avant-garde art movement that sprung up in zurich in around 1914 or 15 and it it spread later to new york city paris you know you had uh berlin i believe there was like a berlin dadaists um so so it you know definitely proliferated had lots of different offshoots um but you know in the beginning it was centered on a place called the cabaret voltaire 
And this was like a very wild anarchic scene. You know, the artistic performances were like. Uh, and this was like Switzerland is basically yeah. World, uh, World War One is unfolding, it, like what, just it, a couple of miles or something away. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That That's like that's like something that's like really important to, you know, the whole thing. And grill Marcus makes that point, uh, you know, cause they had, there was like these motley collages of like dance and music and various free form expressions and all these like different forms of art that were like blended together. And these just kind of like outrageous, you know, um, I don't really know what the correct word for it was, but it, it kind of mirrored, you know, kind of this like insane, horrific devastation that was, you know, World War One. Uh, there was one of the Dadaists, is Jan- Marcel Janko. He he said, you know, we had lost confidence in our culture, and everything had to be demolished. And I think that this kind of like really gets to the core of what Dada was. Cause like, yeah, it definitely was about the war, you know, this, but what was world war one? It was like the first true, like industrial war. This was like the war of modernity. Um, and so you like come to ask like, what is modernity? And it's modernity is like, it's a historical period, but it's like the feeling that one is on the cusp of a future. Um, and if you're, you know, uh, in the future is kind of like uh, it, it's coming together. And for that to happen, the past is coming apart. And so you kind of like this whirlwind effect. And I think that, that that's what modernity is. It's this sensation of creative destruction is how uh, uh, one economist, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, called it. And I think that Dada really wanted to lodge itself in the destructive dimension, you know, wasn't so much interested in uh, the the constructive version. It, it's it wanted to kind of make itself flat with this process of dissolution, right? Um, you know, everything has to be demolished. I mean, that he says it right there, um, and and so. Um, trying to think of how to like phrase this in relation to postmodernity, because if you look at it like this, like Dada is the quintessential modernist art movement. And so that has to change when you get to the postmodern because the postmodern is distinct from the modern. And so, you know, if we think of Dada as like this leveling pulverizing process, you know, it's, it's eliminating art. It's eliminating culture. But what is going on in the postmodern? Like there is, you know, we don't believe in art. There is no art. You know, there is art, but it's not really art. Everything's aesthetic, but in the postmodernism, uh, art is just a commodity. It, you know, it just has an exchange value. And so postmodernism from here is kind of like what's left when everything else is swept away. And Dada is what's, you know, sweeping everything away. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's an anti-art tendency. And so what happens when you kind of uh, spread that across culture and society as a whole? But I also think that the Dadaists, they would be pretty horrified at, you know, the, the postmodern condition. Not because it voids art out, but I think that they would have thought that postmodernism doesn't go far enough. You know, things might not have artistic value, 
they have economic value and they have an exchange value. But even back then, the Dadaists were like, we hate those things. We want to destroy those things too. We don't want any of those values. And so in that sense, you know, they're more extreme than postmodernism ever could be. Yeah, I mean, it really, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's almost the ultimate in nihilism. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And you can kind of like bring that, you know, you know, back to, uh, to, to Nietzsche a little bit, you know, like um, Nietzsche, he's like really kind of concerned with the question of nihilism. You know, he calls it a leveling process. And you would think he'd be like, no, you know, let, let's let's pump the brakes on nihilism. But that's not what Nietzsche says at all. Like he says, you know, uh, we, we have to hasten it. We have to accelerate the process. And like if you, you know, we talk about like, you know, people like Nick Land and accelerationism, you know, you start tracing that term back and you trace it to Deleuze and Guattari, who they say accelerate the process. But you see where they get the term from. And they get it from Nietzsche and Nietzsche saying, you know, push the nihilism as far as you could possibly take it. And so like, you know, Nietzsche is the first accelerationist, but I think that the Dadaists are also doing this exact same thing, you know, push it, you know, to what end, you know, it's not exactly clear in Dada, like what comes at the end of this process. It's just kind of this, uh, you know, in Nietzsche, you know, this kind of culminates in like the Superman or the Overman and Deleuze and Guattari. It's like cosmic schizophrenia. And I guess that's probably pretty close to what the Dadaists want. You know, isn't that really what it yeah, is? Yeah, I suppose in a sense, though, I mean, for them, though, I mean, it was almost like just the act of destruction was really more the important thing than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because like, you know, and say, same with Nietzsche, because it's like for him, like when, when Nietzsche talks about the Overman, like you can't you know what is the overman you know the superman the ubermensch we don't know because it's beyond our capacity to represent it like if we could say what the overman is you know we we would be there already so if it's something that's so far beyond you that you can't comprehend it you know when you say accelerate the process you know push nihilism further you're just doing that for the sake of doing that you know this goal you know if there is a goal it has nothing to do with you so like what's the what's the point you know yeah absolutely um, it's pretty far out yeah it is it is it's uh <laughs> oh, it's a fascinating ideology which uh we will return to here uh, towards the end of our chat so do keep all this in mind folks yeah uh, but now though let's uh move on to one of the great boogeymen of the conspiratorial right the frankfurt school yeah you guys yeah. that one haven't you all right guys <laughs> you go over the significance of this particular current for us all right, th this is funny because like we go from like Dada, which is like, you know, Dada, Nietzsche, accelerationism, it's very extreme. But the, the Frankfurt School, despite what, you know, people have heard about it, it's actually, it's, it's quite modest. Um, it started from an outfit called the Institute for Social Research, which was founded in Germany in the, the 1920s. It was a group of Marxist philosophers and thinkers. They were committed to what like, we would call like ideological critique. And this is just like the critique of prevailing power structures and orders in order to like, you know, hopefully find a way to, you know, kind of change them for, for things that are, you know, maybe better, who really knows. Um, they found themselves basically stuck in a rut 
but you know, some of the important figures that you know, are associated with it, and these are all like pretty interesting people. Like even if you don't agree with them, they're worth reading. Uh, like Friedrich Pollock, uh, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, and Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse are the most famous ones. And they, you know, with the rise of Nazism in Germany, they had relocated from Germany to the United States, uh, arrived in New York City, um, and they first went to Columbia University, and, but they were kind of transient, um, never, ever really got funding for anything they wanted to do, you know, get something here and there, you know, Marcuse famously worked for the OSS at one point, uh, Adorno got money from like the social sciences research council for some stuff but in their time they were actually quite marginal figures but they're they're the people who we would kind of associate with the rise of what today is called like critical theory and critical theory is just a fancy word for like ideological critique you know you analyze social structures uh unveil like its processes of you know domination and oppression and maybe you know just maybe uh transform those conditions so that, that's pretty much the, the short of the the frankfurt school uh, biography okay so my understanding is that postmodernism, despite its uh long-standing links to marxism largely rejected this ideology indeed it uh, largely rejected economic theory altogether correct y yeah um it's interesting because like, you know, we we're talking earlier about like the difference between like postmodernism as a style, postmodernism as like an age. And so I think it's interesting to actually talk about like economics in the context of postmodernity. Um, the French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, who was another one of those French Nietzscheans, but he, he wrote a really famous book on postmodernism. Um, and he argued that postmodernism was the end of meta narratives. And so, meta narratives, you know, in his definition, they're explanatory mechanisms for dealing with historical change. And they kind of structure change and experience in a way to make them intelligible. So, like, you know, the, he, Leotard would say that like Marxism is a meta narrative, it's a storytelling device like weaving a tale about history, right? You know, this is how history works. Um, and so, so when you look in like, like economics and modernism, it's very much kind of like historically grounded, right? Um, but today, you know, you have like post-Keynesian school of economics and it's all very abstract. It dispenses with, you know, questions of history, uh, you know, any, anything actually concrete, it's numbers, it's curves, it's formulas, these very abstract measures, has no real reference to time in it. Um, and so I think that like, that, that's a really interesting way to think about it, because it's like, it treats pretty much anything as a meta narrative, says, you know, we're in the era in which meta narratives are over. And so like even economics itself, which, you know, you would think that that's really distant from postmodernism, but it too doesn't really have any orientation. It doesn't, it's not historically structured. It's, it, it too is kind of free floating. And, and you know, in, in practical reality, that's actually really like problematic because, you know, they <laughs> uh, kind of, 
commitment to these like abstract models has actually kind of triggered economic crises in uh, in, in some contexts. But I, I definitely think that that kind of gets at it. You know, you, a postmodernist proper, you know, somebody who self-identifies as a postmodernist, yeah, would probably just say like, uh, you know, economics is junk. But it's funny because like when you go to like economics, like, I mean, that is true. It is junk. But the postmodernist and the contemporary economist are basically doing the exact same maneuvers. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, just how, well, especially, I mean, kind of late period capitalism and postmodernism have uh, managed to become so uh, comfortably entwined with one another, which I guess we'll probably get into here in a little bit. Um, yeah, definitely. But can you get into some of the influences that postmodernism has had on arts and uh, culture at large? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, like, you know, mentioned earlier about postmodernism, -mo modernity and postmodernity being like questions of time. And I think that like, this is where it's like really important to kind of like ground that, um, you know, if we go back to the pre-modern era, like the, the most common like way that time was articulated was, you know, in cycles, uh, you know, the, the cycle of days, you know, the cosmic loops of the planets and stars, um, you know, the repetitive change of the seasons, uh, you know, these are all, you know, that, that's what structured life. Life was in these circles that just continually passed. But um, in, in, we do have cyclical time in mo modernity, uh, you know, like the clock, the calendar. Th these are models of it. But by and large, like time is treated as something that is, is linear, Right. You know, you, you have the arrow of time. You go from the past to the present to the future. And, you know, thinking of modernism as basically being on the on modernity as being on the edge of the future. Um, and, you know, what, what is the future? It's the new. Um, and, and that's so when you say you're on the edge of the future, it means that you're constantly confronted with this newness and you go through all forms of like modern art. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, being kind of generous with the period. I'd, I'd say anything from like 1600 onwards, you know, it's all over painting, literature, even like you can treat political like literature from the time period as you know the communist manifesto like say what you will about its political contents you can read that as like a piece of modernist literature um and so the thing is is that in postmodernism, we don't have that anymore it just junks this apprehension of time you no longer really necessarily have the past and the future and you're moving from one to the next you have this like kind of infinite now it's all time is like smeared across space uh like mark fisher talked about like he said that everything is boring and nobody is bored and i think that like you could kind of reframe that as like novelty is everywhere but nothing is new because there's really no true experience of historical time uh in the postmodern and i know that's like kind of abstract sounding but you know talk about like some of the like classic like 
tropes and traits of post like art and, and cinema or, you know, film and postmodernism. Uh, Jameson, he wrote a, he wrote a book called the postmodern condition or no postmodernity, cultural conditions of late capitalism. He talks about what he calls nostalgia mode, right? And nostalgia, it's mode is, you know, like you can draw that as distinct from a mood. A mood is a sensation of nostalgia, you know, like this longing feeling that you get. But mode is like a general condition. It's bigger than a mood. You can be in nostalgia mode without feeling nostalgic. And one of the examples he uses is like the original Star Wars films. You know, they reestablished these past forms, you know, these old sci-fi serials, but presented them in a way it's like not mimicking them. You don't like nobody watching Star Wars was nostalgic for 1930s sci-fi serials, but they it were in a nostalgic mode that's what was happening in them and you know like american graffiti would also like you know another george lucas movie would be like a good example it does the same thing with like the 1950s generally like i don't really think american graffiti is a nostalgic film um but it kind of operates from that nostalgic perspective. I kind of think so, uh, maybe a bit of like the Indiana Jones films. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, they're set in like the 30s, the 40s. But I mean, Indy is uh, a very much a modern character with a modern perspective on the world, somewhat at odds with the world that he inhabits in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like that that's a really good point because like yeah, in American Graffiti is kind of the same way where it's like you kind of like have this weird uh these old very old forms, you know, are kind of like reconstructed and, but they still have like kind of this like enough, you know, contemporary sensation. You know, so you don't really get the distance, I guess, that's really required for like the mood of nostalgia. Um yeah, that's funny because we just listed Star Wars, American Graffiti, and Indiana Jones. And these are all Yeah, I was like thinking, well, I guess that maybe kind of indicates, and I mean, another reason why Lucas's stuff was so successful. And then, of course, obviously playing into the archetypes, uh, you know, the uh, Joseph Campbell's whole concept. Yeah. Here with a thousand faces. And, yeah. And, and, you know, like I, I was thinking about this a little bit more because I was like, you know, before this interview, I was going back and I was looking at Jameson's book and where he talks about this nostalgia mood. You know, I started thinking about like the new Star Wars movies. And this is interesting because like Jameson's arguing that the Star Wars movies, they're not, you don't feel nostalgic. Like, like when Star Wars came out in 77 or whatever, nobody was nostalgic for the 30s. But with the new Star Wars, they're nothing but like active. Yeah, they're trying nostalgia. to make us feel nostalgic. Yeah, for the original. Yeah, which is kind of a, you know, he's talking about nostalgia mode, but this is like, nostalgia mood definitely and that's almost like you know war, like uh you know like yeah i don't think that jameson really wanted to be like too critical like let people enjoy their star wars and but you know if when you have something that's actively mining nostalgia like consciously trying to induce in you a nostalgic response i think that, that is really actually negative in a way that maybe like the earlier ones were not yeah, it's kind of interesting, too. I was just thinking about it, but you could really say that about a lot of the um, 
the filmmakers that kind of came up in the same era as Lucas and who he collaborated with or some of his associates collaborated with. Like I was thinking specifically of like Robert Zemeckis. I mean, he was kind of another one. Yeah, yeah. You know, the films like Gremlins, you know, where it kind of goes for that classic Americana vibe. But I mean, it still has that contemporary edge or I mean, obviously the Back to the Future movies. Um, yeah, Back to the Future, I think, would be a really great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously Spielberg to some extent. But yeah, it is kind of interesting interesting when you sort of look at that uh, that whole sort of milieu of film yeah phenomenally successful they were as well right and i think another like interesting kind of thing is to think like think about like david lynch especially blue velvet and twin peaks in relation to this oh yeah because in a way i almost see him as critiquing nostalgia mode Mm -hmm. because he like brings that nostalgia to the forefront and then plays it until it turns sinister you know what i mean well yeah i mean especially like you're saying with blue velvet and twin peaks i mean i think really they were geared specifically to kind of debunk the you know mystification of small town america and the you know right concept that it was this pristine place that uh you know until the rise of the counterculture or something had corrupted it it had been you know perfect yeah (laughs) yeah it's interesting because like i think that like david lynch definitely bears a lot of the hallmarks of like kind of a classic postmodernist but he's he's too conscious you know of it like like he knows how to push it into something entirely different he knows how to like take postmodernism and like turn it back on itself and i think that that's what makes david lynch like such a fascinating figure yeah well i think because i mean the spirituality i mean there's an authenticity to it uh and yeah just, you just don't really get with i mean filmmakers more in the post i mean certainly you could even draw you know parallel to what we were sort of talking about with guys like lucas and um spielberg or what have you i mean the films certainly resonate on the subconscious level with the archetypes but i mean they still just don't have the raw spirituality of something like lynch i mean not even close obviously yeah yeah and it's you know bringing in like uh in that kind of dynamic is really interesting because you know like david lynch you know he has like his whole like transcendental meditation and you look at like what that process is and it's basically just like self-psychoanalysis you know like it's kind of drenched in like kind of a quasi new age vibe but what he's really doing it's it's actually quite similar to what we were talking about with Nietzsche before because like you're basically the principle is you deep dive into your sub into your unconscious and you kind of like drag these things out you know and like this is like Lynch's creative process and so you might be able to like you know that's interesting that really hadn't occurred to me like until just now talking about it you might be able to like draw some really interesting uh comparisons there yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, the rise of postmodernism within policymaking circles really began in the 1980s and picked up steam during the following decade. What were the historic circumstances that led to its rise among the left, especially? Yeah. Okay. So this is the question that I was most excited about because um, I think that this, you know, this actually kind of. To to explain its rise, you know, like in liberal politics, um, it's you really have to like tackle like why did it rise in the first place? Um, And this is, you know, like most 
people who have approached like postmodernism kind of critically, uh, you know, like Jameson, you know, Frederick Jameson, another one's David Harvey, uh, Mark Fisher, they all looked at, you know, it as arising in the early 70s. And they treat it as the cultural expression of changes that were happening in like the social and economic order. And so you kind of have to look at like what was happening, you know, and after World War II, you know, you had what was called like the golden age of capitalism. This was high rates of profit, you know, high wages. Uh, the consumer marketplace was exploding, you know, much to the dismay of the Frankfurt School, because this is what they were really uh, complaining about. Um, but, you know, by the late 60s, uh, this was, you know, it was running out of steam, you know, profitability was falling, trade exports were falling, like inflation was creeping in. And so in the early 70s, there was like a lot of these big moves to reorganize the economic order, you know, like how to keep keep things profitable, keep things going. And there was a massive shift that took place. You know, you had this heavy industrial, uh, advanced industrial civilization was actually what Marcuse called it. Um, you had a shift from that to a finance-driven economy. And this was happening kind of like simultaneous to the rise of like information communication technology. And you can't really separate the two, like for finance to work, you had to have like global communication networks and good computers and stuff. But this kind of gets installed in like piecemeal over the 1970s. Um, and then in the 1980s, like at the dawn of the 80s, you had this thing that was called like the Volcker shock. This was uh, Paul Volcker. He was the head of Reagan's Federal Reserve. They tripled interest rates and it yeah, bankrupted. It, yeah. It was, you know. What was it like? I think 20 percent or something like it, that. It was I mean, it was something. It was really crazy. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult for people in this day and age, I think, to even fathom. I mean, the yeah. way interest rates were in that era. I mean, it was. Yeah. The, the principle behind it was, you know, you had like uh, inflation throughout the 70s. You had an excess of cash in the economy. And so you tripled interest rates real like, yeah, it was tripling, but it took it up really, really high. Um and so what this did, it just sucked money out of the, the real economy. And of course, like in doing this, you know, it triggered like waves of bankruptcies. You know, this is like really when like factories really started closing down. Um, this is when the, thir the third world debt crisis was triggered by this. Like it was really awful. Yeah, it was um, also, this was really the beginning too of the Rust Belt, um, you know, yes, like in the Midwest yeah. and what have you here. Absolutely. It just wiped, it was like a massacre. Mm -hmm. It wiped everybody out. But what happened is that you had two things that happened. One, you had extreme market volatility that came off this. And then you also just had this massive, you know, infusion of cash into like banks and other institutions. And so this basically was like, you had finance that was rising in the seventies and this kind of like dumped fuel into the engine of that. And so you just had this explosion, you know, this, everybody knows like this, you know, everybody's seen the movie Wall Street. That's what this is about. Like, but, you know, the argument that, you know, is, is pretty much like the accepted argument around postmodernism is that it's the cultural expression of a society that is organized on the basis 
of a, of a financialized economy. When you look at the things like we talk about, like, you know, the, the free floating aspect, you know, um, nothing being kind of grounded, all these things are what's going on in the finance market. You know, uh, life is governed by flickering, like free floating signs, money is dematerialized. You know, it's just a pulsing digital signal up on, you know, Wall Street. Economic value isn't fixed. It's constantly fluctuating. Um, And the way that I think that this plays into governance is actually pretty straightforward, right? Um, There's a couple of French economists whose name off the top of my head escapes me, but they talk about what they call social orders. And so like a good example would be like the New Deal as a social order introduced by a Democrat, Roosevelt, but continued by a Republican who was Truman. So it's like this cross-party consensus. You mean Eisenhower, Ed? You just said Truman. I'm pretty oh, sure Truman was a Democrat. Was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It was Eisenhower. Okay, so, okay. Yeah. yeah, but but he continues, you know, the, the whole kind of dynamic. And so like you have like these social orders um yeah but it's the same when we get to this finance era you know it's installed by a republican you know it's installed by reagan but who completes its installation it's clinton you know the democrat you know the whole new democrat trope you know like nafta and things like that were started under reagan they were completed under clinton and it's the same in Great Britain, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that was started by uh, Thatcher, who I think is a Tory, right? But it's completed by Blair, who is new labor. And so it's, it's the form like a consistent thing where you have these right wing regimes that are kind of like a shock to the system. And then that kind of uh, provides cover for the quote unquote left wing party to move. Yes. The, yeah. And exactly. What we're definitely seeing now, I think, in post. Uh, no, no, no. I think that that like that's kind of exactly uh, that's exactly it, because in a lot of ways, you know, if you go back and you really look at what Clinton was doing in terms of, like his economic policies, in terms of his approach to finance, his approach to, you know, trade policy, yeah, all these things, they were Reaganite doctrines, but they were able to do them better than Reagan was ever able to do because they could now pass it under, you know, this new, uh, you know, kind of almost humanitarian, we're, we're liberal you know, we got the people's interested hearts, you know, vote for us, we're not Republicans, and then boom, you got NAFTA, you got Wall Street de- deregulation. And yeah, I think that you're right about like, you know, we're, we're going to see something very identical uh, play out. But, you know, so I, I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make, you know, kind of maybe got lost in the historical details. But like, if postmodernism is the cultural expression of a financialized economy, you know, and I don't, maybe expressions, not exactly the best word, but like a correlation between the two and the financial economy is a social, like a political social order that's installed by both political parties. You know, you get to Clinton, he could only ever be a postmodern like form of government right does that track that definitely seems like a good way to describe the clinton presidency and really the ones that pretty much all the ones honestly that have come afterwards yeah 
no exactly like it's media driven it's weird it's floating it's yeah it, it's spectacular it's digital uh I mean, yeah. I suppose Bush one, or Bush one, yeah, could maybe be seen somewhat as the precursor to it to some extent. Um, I mean, I'm kind of thinking of the absolute media spectacle that the first yeah. war was, especially. I mean, I can still remember it as a kid. I mean, everything. Yeah, I remember. What was it the too. WWF thing where they had Sergeant Slaughter like supporting <laughs> against like Hulk Hogan and just this theater of absurd, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I, I had not thought about that in years. But that, yeah, those are perfect examples. But, but they're like also deeply political. Like these like really strange examples that you, you know, like they're all part of it. They're all like part of this cultural condition. Okay, um, let's see here. All right, as I understand it, there was a kind of uh, historic turn in 2004 that saw postmodernism accepted as the overriding ideology behind most of modern academia. Could you take us uh, through that and its implications? Yeah, like, um, the thing is, like, I've, I've been trying to, I've been pondering this because the, I, I actually had not seen the 2004 date before. Um, but I could definitely like from, you know, my relationship with academia was always kind of like off and on. Uh, so I never really was like too directly like engaged in a lot of different academic trends. But um, I, I think that this, the way, the best way to like think about it is that, you know, academia has a really kind of weird position in our society. It's kind of a liminal space, you know, it's where like ideas are encouraged and you're supposed to kind of like have a dissenting opinion. But at the same time, this is like where the people who will like manage our society, uh, where they come from. And it's like, how do you kind of like balance these two dynamics? You know, the, you know, the, the thank for yourself, you know, rebel, if you will, but also, you know, do, do it in a way that is flush with your ultimate, the ultimate goal of academia, which is kind of like reproduce like these social organizations of, of ideology. And so like when we talk about like postmodernism in academia, it, it would make a lot of sense because it kind of encompasses both of those dimensions. You know, you can kind of have this like uh, fractalization almost of interests that kind of go out in different different directions, but that's the logic of postmodern government in itself. You know, you'll still come back to that like fundamental baseline, you know, this is how society is organized. But the society, you know, in order to organize properly, it needs a little bits of dissent sprinkled throughout it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to have some kind of minority voice. I mean, that's what kind of, uh, you know, prevents uh, societies effectively from stagnating, which is usually uh, a precursor to their ultimate decline. Yeah, exactly. Um, by the way, my source in the 2004 date was Bradley Bowden, uh, I think okay. Australian author, Work, Wealth, and Postmodernism, the Intellectual Conflict at the Heart of Business Endeavor. Okay, I'll, t I'll check that out, like, because I, I was really interested in that, because, I, you know, after thinking about it, I can see, you know, like, a, a shift, you know, like, in a time period, but, like, I, I'd definitely like to, like, uh, see more that, like, you know, fleshes it out, because that is really interesting.
Yes, yes, yes. No, he does some uh, really interesting work on that on Academia, especially. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, definitely for you kids at home too. Definitely uh, consider checking it out. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So the appeal of postmodernism is easy to understand. Capitalism and communism are ultimately materialistic ideologies. And the refusal to acknowledge the importance of things beyond the control of capital was a major failing. Postmodernists were actually aware of the shallowness of the modern world that capitalism and communism had wrought. As consumerism has uh, become the dominant, has come to dominate much of the world in the 21st century, a yearning for something greater is totally understandable. But increasingly, it seems like the pendulum has swung too far in some circles on the left. Um, effectively, economic justice has been abandoned for increasingly vague concepts of social justice, as the great Christopher Knowles is fond of saying. Ed, do you see this as a significant danger to the left? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely do. I guess, like, up front, like, I'd like to clarify the, like, notions of the good and justice and the social ends of these like those are incredibly important things um like the, the human isn't just a social animal it's determined by social conditions that it's embedded in and so like we gain consciousness of the conditions you know that that have this like determining effect on us we gain consciousness of those and that lets us kind of like transform them uh push them into like more just and equitable conditions for all people but I think that the ongoing trend that you're talking about delinks questions of like the, the historical determinants, you know, from how to achieve a common social good. And that's like not to say that struggles for like equality, you know, along different lines aren't important. They are. But I think that we have this problem today where there is a generalized kind of fragmentation that is taking place. And you have this like vast panoply of like causes and signs and movements. And so like, you know, like thinking about like a social movement in that context, you know, none of, they're just kind of like atoms out bouncing around, uh, not really able to like gel with one another. How can you talk about like a common good from that perspective, it becomes incredibly difficult to find like the connecting thread that runs all through them. You know, you can kind of probably tie this back into what we were saying earlier about meta narratives. You know, each one is its own narrative, but you've lost the cohesiveness that kind of like binds them together. Uh, I, I think a really simple way to like think about it is actually through the example of Occupy Wall Street, you know, back in 2011. And I was actually just going to point that out. It seems yes. like it's really picked up since the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yes. Um, and as a disclaimer, I did like participate in Occupy Wall Street. So like a lot of these insights are based on like what I experienced in like New York City at that time. Um, and I do see Occupy Wall Street as a exemplary postmodern social movement. Um, you know, like there was a legitimate motivating factor, like this privileging of finance after the recession. You know, the Obama administration like didn't do shit for anybody. Um, and then this came this like really vague push, like Occupy Wall Street. And it's like to what end? Nobody knew. It's like, what demands were there? Well, there were no concrete demands. And it's like, well, what made up the movement? You know, like, you know, it was really like, uh, I remember like walking around Zuccotti Park and it would be like, 
this like hodgepodge of like anarchists and students and wannabe technocrats and hippies and maybe a couple of like in the fed ron paul types and you know anti-consumer people a couple of very confused like old socialists and then like a whole bunch of people who just wanted to have fun and like you know it was pretty great everybody had a lot of fun but there wasn't anything that could actually be done from it you know at the end of the day the cops just kind of came in and like kicked the shit out of everybody and then a couple of people ended up getting like professional activist careers in the aftermath and so like you talk about like occupy wall street what i kind of see like what you're describing is kind of the extrapolation of like you know like the small zuccotti park occupation with all these very confused different types you know that nothing could come of it you know it's kind of kaleidoscope of movements just kind of extrapolate that to like everywhere and i think that that's the condition that we find ourselves in um i think that that's ultimately you know that i think that that in the at the end of the day doesn't really challenge anything like until you find that cohesive link between all these different things you know how to ground them that's in doing that you're going to change the character of all of them but like that's the main problem with post modernity i think because it denies that there's a connecting thread it denies that there's any kind of grounding for anything so all this is just within the postmodern frame. Absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, you can definitely see that with the Occupy Wall Street thing, too, because, I mean, it seems like an obvious uh, target would have been simply wealth redistribution from the corporations back to the average working people. And I mean, certainly from the billionaire class and what have you. But even then, it just wasn't like you could get a consensus with that necessarily. No, no, not at all. And it was interesting because it is a really good example of how like uh, like. Um, Okay, so it, it occupied Wall Street, like it was very like it was quote unquote like horizontalist, which means like there was like no hierarchies allowed. Uh, so like you kind of denied that there was any kind of leader. It's a leaderless movement. But in place of a leader, you had to develop like a really elaborate mechanism for how people would like debate and decisions would be made. Well, the thing is, is that the elaborate mechanisms governing this horizontal system became like so constricting that it was one of the motivating factors for why Occupy Wall Street like fell about. So I've, that was like one of my biggest takeaways back then, like looking at that, I was like, this is really interesting. It is a horizontal leaderless movement, but the device that they used to organize themselves caused it, you know, much more harm than a leader probably ever could have. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Man. Um, all right, well, to wrap up, I'd like to get into the surprisingly cozy relationship postmodernism has with authoritarian ideologies such as traditionalism and fascism. It's often forgotten that fascism was an outgrowth of futurism, which in turn was spawned from Dadaism. Elsewhere, Julius Evoli cut his teeth as a Dadaist artist before discovering the tradition. Superficially, these links seem curious, but not upon closer examination. Can you explain those ties for us, Ed, and why, you know, kind of the modern manifestation, you see people like Dugan and Nick Land sort of finding some kind of common ground? 
Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Uh, with regards to like Evola in Dada, this is something I've been meaning to look at forever and haven't really had like a chance to do it yet. But this is, you know, like uh, when, when looking at Dada, this was kind of like a repetitive thing. This happened not just to Evola, but uh, Hugo Ball as well became kind of like a Catholic mystic uh, in the aftermath of Dada. And actually, like he, he attributed the discovery of like this was like years after the fact. And so he's probably just kind of myth making. It's kind of like uh, not to interrupt you, but it kind oh, of go ahead. like the people who were involved in the movement. It was almost kind of like a peak experience type thing. Um, yes, I know, you know Chris Knowles has kind of talked about being involved in the hardcore scene. And I can kind of say the same thing, being involved uh, a little bit in the Florida death metal scene. But it's like when you're involved cool. with those like really intense uh, mm -hmm movements like that i mean it seems like everybody afterwards is always kind of like looking for something to replace the high that you yeah effectively from being involved in those things yeah i know exactly kind of like you know being involved in like different scenes and in different things i know exactly the kind of like dynamic you know because like when you do kind of have these like kind of collective rupturing experiences um nothing like you know it when you kind of like come down from that for lack of a better word, it's like, well, where do you go, uh, go from here? And, and so like, like Hugo ball, like he talked about like, uh, pseudo Dion Dionysius, who was a sixth century, uh, theologian. Um, he was a big influence on like Catholic mysticism. He later was like, yeah, when I came up with the words Dada, it was St. Pseudo Dionysius coming to like, tell me about it. So like, you know, I, I doubt that that was there when Dada was actually happening, but I think it's interesting because it's like you, you talk about it being like a peak experience. Um, it seems like Hugo Ball definitely reinterpreted it after the fact as exactly that, you know, um, definitely interesting and want to know more about the Evola angle, especially with the like popularity of Evola today. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the general question of reaction um at it within like the postmodern context uh i kind of view this and i think that like you know mentioned nick land he would probably be a little bit of a different case and so you kind of like set him aside for the moment um because he's definitely doing his own thing but like a lot of it i kind of see it you know we, we talked earlier about postmodernism as like kind of a loss of historical orientation you know this eternal now um and that's very confusing like, like jameson you know he fleshed this out with a architectural example he used a, a famous hotel in la that, you know, it was like a kind of a classic postmodern architecture. It was all reflective surfaces and like, you know, deceptive, you know, directional arrows and meandering hallways. Like it was designed to get you lost in it. And he was like, that's what postmodernism is. You know, just imagine you're in this hotel, but that's everywhere. Um, and it's like when you're in a society that's completely disorienting, that doesn't have any sort of orientation, you know, you no longer have direction. You can't really grapple with the way that time works anymore. Uh, everything is just different. Uh, there is an impulse to kind of compensate for that. And I think that that's where a lot of this reaction comes from. Like if we're going to continue with like an architectural example, like in the seventies, when a lot of this like very weird uh, postmodern architecture was springing up, 
there was like a, uh, a kind of a counter movement that emerged. A lot of it was like very folksy, rustic cottage type stuff. And, you know, this was compensating for what was happening, you know, and it did that by like kind of trying to return to this idealized, imagined past. Um, and I think that you could, you know, that's an architectural or urban planning example, but we can make the exact same comparison in like a political context, you know, like take Donald Trump, you know, the make America great again. Like what, what is make America great again? It's just an empty signifier, you know, very classic postmodern. Uh, it says that America has lost its orientation. So it expresses the postmodern condition, um, you know, and it says we got to get, you know, we got to fix it. We got to get some kind of reorientation for America going, but never tells you when or where you're going back to, you're just making it great again. So a person looking at that slogan can attach whatever meaning they really want to it, you know, and I see that as being the core of contemporary, like neo-authoritarian, you know, reactionary politics is that it always has a pretense of the past. It always looks, you know, backwards. It's, you know, it's a classical fascist or, you know, we're going to make America great again, or it's this or it's that, but it never actually has any kind of concrete connection to the thing that it wants to attach itself to. Um, and in that sense, it's a very kind of imaginative, it, it it's a LARP at the end of the day, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that like these reactionary politics, they are LARPing because they don't, they're not grounded in any kind of tradition, you know, because how could they, the chain has been completely broken. Yeah, it's um, fascinating. And then, I mean, you know, you throw in something like QAnon where it's like, you know, you've got like LARPs within LARPs that are like, yeah, no, I, I think that that's a really great example um, because, you know, thinking about, how QAnon works is it, it it both like creates a social reality but it also kind of like hijacks one as well um and so i i think a really key component of like postmodern governance more generally is the way that it captures things and kind of redeploys it you know kind of in the social field for its own ends and so like yeah like i i feel like QAnon definitely kind of captured the the LARP, you know, the LARP of compensatory politics, and then was like made a LARP on top of that LARP. And so you have this like, yeah, like Russian dolls of uh, cascading, just like increasingly bizarre tilt-a-whirl, you know, psychedelic in the bad sense of the word. Uh, I don't even know if politics is how you would describe QAnon, just, just a cult. It's fascinating, man. That's yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's it depresses me. Like, like, like on one hand, it's like it's really interesting, but I don't know. I, I think I told you about how like this is getting off topic, but like um, I got got a parlor account just so I could like look at what people are saying, and it was really fun for like a few days. Like, oh, this is so kooky. But then after like a week of looking at it, I was like, oh, this is like this is really tragic and like people's, you know, brains are going to be permanently scrambled by, you know, whoever is running the Q machine, <laughs> you know, the man behind the curtain, uh, the horrific damage. Because then like on the flip side of the coin, you know, you've got like the Russia gate stuff being peddled by the legacy media. Oh yeah. And it's not the discount, obviously that there's not some Russian involvement, but I mean, you know, when you look at something like Cambridge Analytica, I mean, most of the players 
were us uk or israelis you know i mean they're mm -hmm. basically totally distracting from like the real nucleus of the players and like trying to focus on big russia yeah. so you've already yeah. created this other absurd conspiracy theory that i mean you know the likes of, like rachel meadows and what have you are peddling to the nation at large so it, exactly and, and in some ways this is going to be kind of a hyperbole, um, but like in, in some ways, like the Russiagate stuff was almost more pernicious than than QAnon in, in the sense that like at least QAnon like played off, you know, like people should be paranoid and wary of the way that the system's working. But like the Russiagate stuff was like the system's not working anymore. And we have to make the system work again. It, it does have like an identical logic to it in a way, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I, I just not, I'm not saying I'm sympathizing with the Q people. I'm not at all, but I'm saying like, I can understand the Q mentality easier than I can, you know, people who flocked to Russiagate. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff now that the, they're trying to depict as being utterly absurd about, you know, QAnon, like especially the emphasis on uh, pedophilia among the elite. It's like, you know, we've just seen Jeffrey Epstein. We've seen Jimmy Savile. I mean, this yeah. is a thing. And that's, you know, really in a lot of ways, what the, dis uh, the Q thing is so disgusting is, I mean, it's almost turned it into this uh, ridiculous, uh, almost comic book type scenario. Yeah. Uh, which I got big questions about that, like just alone, mm -hmm. the way that it's like. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's almost been, yeah, I mean, a way to try to uh, drum down any real uh, questions about the implications of Epstein and some of this other stuff. Uh, I know, because like, it, isn't it interesting that like as QAnon like rose, like the way that, you know, when Epstein like first, you know, quote unquote committed suicide, uh, you know, he er everybody was talking about like elite pedophilia then here comes you know pizzagate and then after that QAnon, and now it's like when people talk about epstein it's always just like oh what celebrities were on his flight logs you know which is completely you know not i mean it's interesting but it's not like the real question it's not the real heart of the matter but that's been completely sidelined it's like you yeah. know the questions just kind of you know get drowned out in the noise that is the QAnon yeah yeah and then i mean obviously you know we've got the whole establishment thing with russia gate which once again is being dragged back out with these you know allegations that what trump was a 40-year uh kgb asset or something. I, I just i don't believe it man i just don't <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> like that's such a long game i'm sorry i can't i don't accept that uh yeah 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 no it's it's amazing it just it really is um i mean I, I would definitely watch a movie about like a 40-year plot to install like a, a a spy president like that would be cool as hell but like as reality i just mm, just not see it yeah yeah no like i said it's just it's amazing i mean seeing this stuff play out now um <laughs> <laughs> for sure oh. So, um, do you have any closing thoughts for us here before we sign off? Um, you know, I'm trying to think if there was anything that we didn't get to. I hope this wasn't too fragmented, but in a way that would almost be fitting for its topic matter because, you know, how do you, how, what is the best way to talk about a fragmentary, uh, meandering condition like postmodernism without, you know, indulging in that a little bit? 
because that's really kind of the, the, the really heart of the matter, I think, you know, if we talk about postmodernity as a cultural condition, you know, we have to realize that we are, you know, part of that and implicated within it, you know, that is the determining factor, like, you know, whether or not we, we want it to be, it is, but when you start from like the recognition of that, you know, that is that kind of like gaining a critical consciousness and, you know, maybe we can do something to, you know, kind of change it. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion, Ed, and um, I think it is uh, fairly coherent, but suitably fragmented uh, to be up to postmodern standards. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, folks, I believe we will sign off. Um, again, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, this is definitely, I think, a very pertinent uh, discussion. So, um, yeah, hopefully you have stuck around to this point. And on that, I say to all of you, good night and good luck. Until next time.